morning. So I said, uh, I think this is a product of, I could blame my old age, but it's just me probably uh, forgetting. I said I was going to pray for the sick people, and I didn't, did I? And so I'm going to do that right now as we begin. Uh, Lord God, thank you for your love and care and concern for us, and Lord, your love and care and concern for those who are not with us, who are feeling ill and sick and in various degrees, in various ways. We lift them up to you and we pray they would be comforted, they would sense your presence with them. As their body physically feels terrible, Lord, you would come and, and, and bring them peace in, in you, in, in relationship with you, Lord. And we pray for healing for their bodies. We pray that you uh, would work in them, we give doctors wisdom and heal them. Lord, we pray specifically for Tony, who's very sick, and we uh, just put her into your hands. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles, if you join me in Romans chapter 6, there's a word in this chapter that is used repeatedly. Uh, besides words like uh, to and as and in, you know, those little small words that are everywhere, this word is used more than any other in Romans chapter 6. In 23 verses, it's found 17 times. Anyone think they know what the word is? That'd be nice. That'd be nice. The word is sin. The word is sin. Not one of our favorite things to think about or talk about. Sin is clearly, though, a focal point of what Paul wants us to understand. It's at the at really much of the heart of what he wants us to see. In fact, it's a it's a focal point of throughout Scripture. You could you could call it the antagonist or the villain of the Bible. You know, we talk about our, our, our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What do they all have in common? They're all pushing us towards sin. But as I was preparing this message, I was struck with how often I gloss over what sin really is and what sin really does. Now, it's not that I don't know the definition of sin. I know that, that the word used in the New Testament is from a Greek word, is this Greek word, Harmatia. I know it was used of ancient Greek archers who, who missed the bullseye. You know, they, they were shooting for the, the bullseye and they missed the mark. I know that it refers to missing God's mark, failing to obey God. I can even list lots of actions and attitudes that the Bible calls sin, murder and hatred and adultery and fornication and lust and lying and cheating and stealing, pride and envy and idolatry covetousness, and the list goes on and on. So in one sense, I, like most of you, certainly know what sin is. But in another sense, I forget just how devastatingly destructive it can be. I speak about its evils, but I commit it without thought of its impact. I forget what it does to me, how it corrupts and destroys how sin hurts me, how it hurts others, how it stunts my spiritual growth and robs me of the happiness to be found in Jesus Christ. How it causes me to treat people with selfish contempt instead of love. But instead of hating my sin, as I should, I often become comfortable or at least tolerant of it. It's like an old pair of shoes that I need to throw out but just keep putting back on. 
And the reason I'm telling you this is not to bear my soul. Well, maybe that's helpful. But I, but I don't think I'm alone. Shoes come in all sizes and many of us have an old pair or, or pairs we're unwilling to get rid of. Many of us have, have become complacent about the sin in our lives. And so when the Bible talks about sin, our hearts and our minds uh, can go into neutral. We already know what it is. We already know we aren't supposed to do it. Uh, but we've tried. We've tried to stop and we can't. So what more is there to say? Well, actually, there's a lot more to say. That's why the Bible spends so much time talking about sin. In our study through Romans, the Apostle Paul has already said a lot. And he'll continue to say even more. He's like a, a dog with a bone. He's, he's not going to let it go. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he continues to emphasize the problem of sin. In our passage today, Romans chapter 6 uh, three verses, verses 14 through 16, he warns us not to be enslaved to sin. And it's my prayer that, that we'll heed this warning. That we'll, in a, in a new way, and from this day forward, truly take to heart the destructive and devastating, the enslaving nature of this villain called sin. That we'll not be comfortable with or tolerant of sin, but we'll continue to fight against it with everything we have, with everything God gives us. So, so before we look at our passage today, I'd like, us, I'd like you to join me one more time in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. And that as we hear your word, as we hear your warning against sin, that our hearts would be convicted and our lives transformed. That today, you would deliver us from our lethargy regarding the sin in our lives. That today would mark a new beginning of freedom. Freedom from sin, and yes, uh, but a new day uh, of slavery. Slavery to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we need to review, to get to Romans six fourteen and, and beyond, we need to review the context. It, it, we find it in. Over the past several weeks, we've been focusing on a, a crucial aspect, uh, something we uh, need, prerequisite, we called it, for our fight against sin, and that is our, our union with Christ. That God miraculously and mysteriously unites those who are saved by grace through faith with, with His Son, Jesus Christ. That we are in Christ. Remember the illustration of the plane. What happens to the plane happens to the people in the plane. And what happens to Christ happens to us. What's true about Christ is true about us. And Paul says two specific things. He draws two, the two main applications from our union with Christ. First, he says we are united with Christ in His death. We died with Christ. Which means like Christ, we are dead to sin. Remember, he talked that we're baptized into uh, death, and, and, and sin dies. And second, well, wait, wait, let me back up a second. So we died to sin. So unlike before we came to Christ, now sin has no authority, no control in our lives. And second, we're united with Christ in His resurrection. We're, we're lifted up, which means that like Christ, we receive a new life. 
We are now and will be for all eternity in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So if you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then, then know, know this. You've been fundamentally and profoundly changed. A transformation has taken place. In Christ, you've been declared, you've been counted righteous. In Christ, you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. According to God, that is who you truly are. And so the remainder of your life here on earth involves uh, considering, reckoning, counting this to be true, believing and living based on the fact that you are dead to sin and you are alive to God. The Christian life is really a process of becoming who God has already declared you to be. And a major part of becoming who you already are involves this fight against sin. You see, even though we've been counted righteous, even though it's technically and legally true that you're dead to sin and alive to God, until we come face to face with Jesus Christ in glory, our sinful flesh still has influence over us. Our uh, flesh, we call it the old self sometimes, who by nature rebels against God and seeks to do things my way, continues to rear its ugly head. Like a, like a small child who's been caught with their hands in the cookie jar. Our, our flesh continues to grab at sin and, and try to stuff it down our throats before it's finally destroyed. Therefore, we must continue to fight against our sinful flesh. And we must, uh, and as we saw last week in Romans 6, 12 and 13, the two verses prior to what we're going to look at today, Paul gives us a two-part battle plan. First, We must prevent sin from reigning. Sin reigns, in in a sense, by definition, by that word reign, when we we allow it to be our our ruler, our master. When we surrender to it, when we stop fighting uh, against it and instead we go along with it. We present our members, our body parts to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And so first, as we saw last week, we prevent sin from reigning, first part of the plan, by using our God-given, Spirit-empowered self-control to say no to sin. No, I'm not going to present my members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But we can't stop with just saying no. It's not going to work. If you're trying that, if you're trying to just say no, that's all, you will fail. We must also say yes to God. There's a part two. The second part of the battle plan against sin is to present yourself to God, to surrender yourself to to Him completely, to live by His will, His ways, His Word, to worship and honor and glorify Him in all that you do, to do His work. Romans 6.13 makes clear, do not present your members, literally your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought back from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. To fight against sin, we must say no to sin. We must not present our members to sin for unrighteousness, but instead we must say yes to God. We must present or or give or surrender ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness for His purposes, for His glory, and for our good. That's the two-part strategy Paul gives to fight against sin. 
Now, in our passage for today, beginning in verse 14 of Romans 6, Paul continues to emphasize this two-part strategy. He'll repeat some of the things he's already said, but he'll go at it from a, a different perspective, still seeking to build a case that will convince his readers, his readers then and us now, of our need to forsake any notion that we should, should or can continue in our sin. He begins with a, a promise about the rule of sin. Verse 14, Paul's just told us not to present our body, our body parts to sin, but instead to present them to God. Why? Because for those who are in Christ, for sin will have no dominion over you. Now, it's important to notice in this phrase, we'll get to the word dominion, that's important, but, but before that, notice he says uh, the promises sin will have. Like the English, the Greek is the future tense. Sin will have. Actually, the Greek is the, the get this, future act. You know, Greek is hard. It's got lots of tenses. It's the future active indicative tense, which means that this promise is guaranteed to be fully fulfilled in the future, but that is also active in the present. God is at work in our lives right now so that sin will have no dominion over us. We are in the process of overcoming the dominion of sin in our lives. Now that word dominion means to be the Lord of, to to rule over, to have power over. In the NIV and the NASB, it's translated master. Sin will no longer be your master. At one time, sin was your master. But but in, in process now, and fully in the future, sin will have no dominion, no uh, lordship, no mastery over you. Why? Because or, or since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's what the second part of verse 14 says. And this is a new aspect of Paul's argument about sin's inability to rule in our lives. He's already said that, that sin can't have dominion, because we're dead to sin and alive to God. We just need to reckon it so. That was back in, in the previous weeks, previous part of Romans 6. And now he says, sin can't have dominion because we're not under the law, but under grace. Now, what does that verse mean? Let's explore it by asking and, and answering three questions. First, what does it mean that you are not under the law? Now, Paul is speaking to Christians. He's writing to the church in Rome. And it's true that as Christians, much of the Old Testament law does not apply to us. Specifically, the the sacrificial and ceremonial law that was fulfilled by Christ. And the laws that specifically governed Israel as a nation. But when Paul says, you are not under the law, he's also referring to more than just not having to obey certain Old Testament laws. He's also referring to the belief shared by many Jews that obedience to the law made one righteous and therefore meant they would be saved. We talked a lot about this in Romans chapter 2. Those who are under the law place their hope and their trust in their own ability to keep the law. So being under the law means trusting in your own ability to meet God's righteous standards through obedience to the law. That by obeying the law, you become righteous and earn your salvation. Under the law. Second question, what does it mean to be under grace? That word grace means God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. 
And you come under grace when through nothing you did, nothing you do, nothing you earn, nothing you deserve, you're saved by grace, the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be under grace. And you also remain under grace. You don't go under grace and get saved and then come out from under grace. You continue to receive, to live in God's grace. That's how you live the Christian life, under the grace of God. So second, being under grace means you, you have and are trusting in Jesus Christ to meet God's righteous standard. That by grace, through faith, you're, you're counted righteous. You've received salvation as a free gift. And you continue to live the Christian life by grace, by the grace of God. When you fail, when you fall, when you sin, when you fail to live up to God's Righteous standards, you're given grace. You're forgiven. Now the third question is, why does being under grace instead of under the law mean that sin has no dominion over you? Well, because there, there will come a day, a day of total transformation for those who are under grace. A day when our, our flesh and, and therefore, sin will no longer have influence over us. Do you long for that day? I certainly do. The day when you no longer are tempted to sin, when sin has been put away, the old flesh is done away with. The Apostle John describes it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not sure what this whole afterlife is going to be like, John says. But we know that when He appears, this is what we know, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. When upon our death or or Christ's return, we come face to face with Him, we, those who are in Christ, those who are under grace, will become like Him and sin will be no more. Amen. Hallelujah. And further, those who are under grace will not be judged based on their own efforts, on their their efforts to do good works, their efforts to obey the law, to be righteous. Instead, because they're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they will be judged based not on their own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. So ultimately, and for all eternity, sin will not have dominion over those who are under grace. But what does that mean this side of eternity? What does it mean for for us whose flesh is still seeking to stuff sin down our throats? What does it mean for our fight against sin? Or does it mean we don't have to worry about fighting against sin at all? If being under grace means our future salvation and eternal life is secure in Christ, sin will have ultimately no dominion over us, do we need to worry about whether sin has dominion over us right now? Do we need to bother to fight to free ourselves from the influence of our flesh and dominion of sin? Well, that's the question Paul answers next. A question about the practice of sin. The question comes in verse 15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Are we? Is it okay uh, to continue to practice sin 
because we're not under the law, but under grace. We're not going to be judged by our works. But we're going to be judged by the righteousness of Christ. This certainly reminds us of the question Paul asked earlier in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 6. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see the relationship. Both questions are asking something similar. And, and they're... And they're Repetition, the fact that he does it twice, once in one, and now in this section 15, emphasizes just how serious this notion that we can continue in our sin is. How serious it is to to say, no, that's not the case. We'll get to that. It's true that our salvation has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with our good works, our obedience to the law. So then, can we allow sin to rule Because we're forgiven and will be saved by grace. If we're not under the law, if we're not under a works-based system of righteousness, if we can't earn it, then are we under any obligation to the law at all? Can we do whatever we choose? Do we have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore? Paul's beginning to address an extremely practical question. What is a Christian required to do? Can you be saved by grace and just keep living in sin? What obligations do Christians have in our daily lives? For example, are Christians obligated to have a quiet time, have daily devotions? Why does a Christian get up early in the morning to read the Bible and to pray? Why do we need to have uh, self-control since we're not under the law? Why do we need to fight against sin since we we don't need to worry that God will reject us because of our moral failure, because we're under grace? So the question, are we to sin? Are we to let sin rule because we are not under the law but under grace? That's the question. And as in verse 1, Paul gives the very short, simple, and same answer. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Again, emphatic statement. No way. Shouldn't even be thinking that way. No way are we to practice sin because we are under the law, not under the law, but under grace. Well, why not? Now, in verses 2 through 11, Paul answered the the question, His answer had to do with our union with Christ. In Christ, we're dead to sin and alive to God. It's the reality of who you are. We we have been set free from sin's power and authority to live this new life. This new life in Christ. So it's ridiculous to think you're dead to sin, you've been given this new life. It's ridiculous to think that you would continue in sin of that old life, that old self. And now, beginning in verse 16 and continuing really through chapter 7, the beginning of 7, Paul expands on the answer. In verse 13, he's already written, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. There's something crucial about presenting. Either you will present yourself Give yourself to follow after sin or God. Either you will allow sin to rule or you will allow God to rule. There's no other option. Paul wants us to know that what you present yourself to 
matters a great deal because there, there is a principle about slavery to sin. That's our third point, a principle about slavery to sin. Beginning in verse 16, Paul will use the illustration of slavery. He'll give us a two-part principle concerning slavery. And even though we, as Chad sort of pointed out, we're Americans founded independence, we're independent, we think we're independent and free, that we're the captains of our own ship, that we decide our fate, Paul wants us to understand the first part of this principle is everyone is a slave to something. As Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan sang, and as I titled this sermon, you got to serve somebody. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, everyone is a slave to something or someone. That's the point Paul makes in the beginning of verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? Again, who you present, who you give yourself to, makes all the difference. You'll become a slave to the one you present yourself to. Now we need to understand the kind of slavery Paul's talking about. Notice Paul said, if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves. The word obedient means compliant or submissive. The picture is not of someone who's captured and forced into slavery. The picture is of one who's willingly enslaved themselves. In fact, the Greek word used here for slave is is the word doulos. And although it can mean to be forced into slavery, it often referred to those who voluntarily gave themselves into the service of another. That's why it's often translated, uh, in in a sense, positively in the New Testament as servant or bondservant instead of slave. In his commentary, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, John Zeisler writes, people in dire poverty could offer themselves as slaves to someone simply in order to be fed and housed. If you're really poor, maybe you have a family, no food, no... uh, no government assistance available. You found someone that was wealthy and you said, uh, will you feed and house me and I will work for you. I enslave myself to you. And this certainly would have been understood in the Roman church. It's estimated that in the first century, the population of Rome was about one-third slaves. And many of those who were free had once been slaves. So it's very likely that more than one half of of those reading this letter for the first time either were or or had been enslaved. They knew exactly what Paul was talking about. They knew by experience that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one you obey. You become a slave to the one you present yourself to. This is true in regards to actual slavery. And it's true for for the many things we present ourselves to today. You become a slave to what you willingly present yourself to. Some people are enslaved to their work. They have one overwhelming pursuit in life, and that's their job. They wear the badge, uh, workaholic, with honor. Some are enslaved to wealth, to things, possessions. Got to have more. All their time and energy is given to their stuff. And they're always dreaming about how to, how to get more. 
They would subscribe to the saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. Some are enslaved to sex. In their thoughts and their actions, they, they fill their time and use their resources to seek that next sexual, sensual experience. Others can be enslaved to habits or hobbies, activities, some good, some bad. Sports fans, that word fans is from the word fanatic, can be slaves to their team's schedule, got to see that game. Their team's wins and losses cause an emotional roller coaster in their lives. Collectors can be slaves to their collection, have to keep searching for that, that one final piece, that one last beanie baby, I don't know. Gamers can be slaves to their computers and phones and tablets and game consoles. They spend hours trying to defeat some imaginary something to be rewarded with yet another level. Today, many people are enslaved to social media. They, they can't go more than a few minutes without checking their email or their Facebook or whatever the, the new thing is. I, I'm, I know Facebook is passe, I hear. Their emotions rise and fall on how many times their latest post receives likes. Still others are enslaved to their appearance, always worried about how they look, spending their time and their money on gyms and clothes and beauty products. And the list goes on. You know it. The things we present ourselves to, the things we give our time, our resources to, these things become our our master's. That's the first part of the slavery principle. Everyone is a slave to something. No one is ultimately in control of their own life. We are controlled by what we present ourselves to. Whether we call ourselves religious or not, we all have a God that we serve. And ultimately, what we, what we choose to serve falls into one of two categories. Paul may, will make it clear, uh, we said it already, that, that there are fundamentally only two masters. This is the second part of the slavery principle. Everyone serves sin or God. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. All humanity, you, me, everyone, serves under one of two masters. You only have two choices. First, you can serve sin, which leads to death. Now, death here is both physical and spiritual eternal death. But that doesn't mean that, that if a true Christian at some point is, is serving sin, they've, they've chosen, they make the wrong choice, they've come out from service to God and they're serving sin, that he or she will die spiritually and eternally. Remember, Paul has already promised, if you're under grace, sin will have no dominion over you. What I think it means is that when you serve sin, when you put yourself on that path that's leading to death, and you'll experience the same things that those who are headed for death are experiencing. Paul is is just stating the reality of what life is like when you serve sin. It's dead. There is no true joy or satisfaction. There's temporal pleasures. The pleasures of sin are temporary. There's no eternal, there's no permanent joy and satisfaction because you've removed yourself from your slavery, your service to God. That's the second master, the second choice, the right choice. Obedience to God, which leads to righteousness. 
We'll talk more about righteousness shortly, but, but what I want us to understand is that there's no middle ground. You can't walk the fence. You can't be lukewarm. You have to be hot or cold. You will serve sin or you will serve God. In fact, I'd put it this way. If you're not a slave to God, then you are a slave to sin. Being a slave to anything besides God is slavery to sin. Now, slavery to sin looks different in each individual's life. I mean, you could, there, there could be people, maybe there are people in here, enslaved to, to sin, and you'd never know it. For some, it's obvious, like many of the examples we already looked at. But for others, their slavery and sin is disguised. Often it's disguised by good works, by being a good person. For example, you might present yourself, not to God, but to the latest good Christian cause. You might fight for the rights of others. You might give yourself to working for the homeless tirelessly. Okay, I won't even try. You might fight against racism or sexism or a host of other isms. You might work to put an end to abortion or or human trafficking. But all the while, you're enslaved to sin, enslaved to pride and self-righteousness. You're doing these things, or should I say you can be doing these things, so that others will admire you. And or you are doing these good things Because you believe they will earn your righteousness. They will earn God's favor. They will put God in your debt. And if those are your motivations, realize that God looks at your heart. You can do the greatest works ever. Read 1 Corinthians 13, love, about love. You can can give yourself, offer yourself up to be burned, but without love, it's meaningless. God looks at the heart. And if your motivations are pride or self-righteousness, then just like the one who's enslaved themselves to work or wealth or sex, you are enslaved to sin. Now don't get me wrong, just clarity. We, don't, we, we need to get involved in good Christian causes. But we need to do it from our position of slavery to God. Our service to these causes must come from obedience to God. As God puts a call on your life, to work against some injustice in society. Our purpose for involvement should be for the glory of God, not for our own pride or self-righteousness, not out of slavery to sin, which is, in fact, our default position. You see, everyone who's ever lived has been a slave to sin. We saw this in Romans 5. We are born in Adam, in bondage to sin, headed for death. Jesus makes this very clear. In John chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, the Pharisees, those who were under the law, said, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices, and that word practices continually involved in sin, it's not talking about a single sin, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus called these self-righteous men slaves to sin. And and this indictment applies to everyone who's ever lived. We were all, and still can be, slaves to sin. And the end of slavery, a 
according to our text, is death. Sin, which leads to death. To a life that's dead. To a life of joylessness, of happilessness, ultimately of, of, of coming to the end of yourself participating in what's enslaved you and, and, and maybe a pleasure for a moment and then time and time of depression and fear. There are definite consequences in this life to presenting yourself to sin, making sin your master. Now the second slavery is obedience. Obedience to God specifically. If we are continually presenting ourselves to God as obedient slaves, if our desire is to obey God and we seek to live out that desire, then just like slavery to sin, there are consequences. But they're vastly different. Instead of death, we receive righteousness. I said we'd talk about this. This, that's, That's what we're talking about now. This is the good part. That word righteousness means the condition that's acceptable to God. And in a broad sense, it means the state of being who you ought to be. The state of being right. Not right as in right and wrong, but right. This, this, is, this feels right. Righteousness is being in the state that is acceptable God, and that state is where you ought to be. That's where you were created to be. We were created to be right before God. We were created to be in right relationship with God. And it's, and it's when we live in obedience to God that we enter a state of rightness or righteousness we know it's right maybe you've experienced this we experience i'm i'm walking with jesus i'm obeying jesus i know i i was tempted not to but i chose uh i chose to not do that sin i chose to obey god and there's joy we experience peace and joy and satisfaction when we obey god when we're walking with god the path to righteousness before God, and and rightness within ourselves is through obedience, through slavery to God. A missionary and author, and who I named my daughter after, Elizabeth Elliot, tells of visiting in Scotland and observing a Scottish collie in his glory, tending the sheep. He was doing what he was bred for and trained to do. He was beautiful to watch as he circled right and left, barking, crouching, racing along, herding the stray sheep here, nipping at a stubborn one there, his eyes always glued to the sheep, his ears listening for the tinny metal whistle from his master. As she watched, she reflected. I saw two creatures who were in the fullest sense in their glory. A man who had given his life to a sheep who loved them and loved his dog, And a dog whose trust in a man was absolute, whose obedience was instant and unconditional, and whose very meat and drink was to do the will of his master. The dog didn't understand the pattern, only obedience, and he was in glory. I see this with my my own dog, Piper. He's a lab, and if you've had a lab, you know what they want to do. I want to go fetch something, right? I just throw it, and they will go get it, and they are so happy. My dog, literally, we have a place where we store his ball, and if you walk outside, he goes over to that place and just starts dancing around and jumping. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. I want to do this. This is what I was meant to do. 
That's what obedient slavery to God. And when he's, when he's catching the ball, he's, I mean, dogs don't really smile, but you can see him smile. And he drools a lot. That's what obedient slavery to God and righteousness bring to us. Not, obe- not drooling, but obedience to God liberates us to be what we're called to be. And it's a little more complicated than fetching a ball, but it's just as pleasurable. As our master, he completely knows us. He knows what's best for us. He wrote the manual. To use Elizabeth Elliot's words, He is our Creator. The One whose spoken word called into being the unimaginable thing called space and the equally unimaginable thing called time. He set the stars in trajectories and put the sliding shutter on the lizard's eye. That is why when we obey Him, we become all we are meant to be. And so I hope You can see why it's ridiculous to think that being under grace means you can or should or would even want to just keep sinning. Paul's given us two reasons for not presenting ourselves to sin. First, it's ridiculous because sin has an enslaving nature. You can't just play with sin. You can't just sample sin. If you present yourself to sin, you become a, a slave to sin, which leads to death. And second, it's ridiculous because of the joy to be found in obedience to God. That's where life is, is lived. That's what you were created to be. When we who are under grace present ourselves fully to God, it's then and only then that we become who we are in Christ, who we're meant to be. It's then and only then when we experience the joy and the satisfaction, the pleasure, if you will, of this life, the abundant life that Jesus promised. It's only then that we become righteous, right with God. It's through obedience to God that we become who we're meant to be in Jesus Christ. So we have before us this day uh, two possible slaveries. Again, you've got to serve somebody. You, you get to choose. You get to choose, maybe even on a daily basis. As you wake up in the morning, you get to decide, is this going to be a day I'm going to focus on serving to God, or am I going to give myself to this thing? This thing that my flesh wants me to do. We can present ourselves to sin or to God. Let me say, just if, if right now, if, if you, or as you're thinking about your life and where you are, if you're currently in a time of presenting yourself to sin, maybe it's even been a long time, if you're enslaved to to sin of any kind, you can today move out from under that sin. Because if you're in Christ, you're under grace, and God is there, He's waiting, He'll forgive, He'll restore. You can repent of your sin and return to God. Present yourself to God today. Now, would you pray with me? That we would be a people who present ourselves to God, who live for His purposes, who live for His glory. That that we would reject slavery to sin and be slaves to God. For what purpose? For His glory and for our good. For our righteousness, for our rightness, for our joy and satisfaction in this life as we anticipate the eternal life to come. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, 
so that, that you wouldn't let us go. Lord, I know you won't. You've promised that sin will have no dominion over us, Lord, and I pray that that would be true on a daily basis in our lives. Lord, I pray as the flesh seeks to tempt us to sin, as sin calls us to different things, things we know are wrong, as we seek our joy and satisfaction in those things, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would miraculously draw us to yourself. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need the power of your Spirit to just uh, strengthen our self-control, to give us self-control, that we might go about our daily lives presenting ourselves on a regular basis to you, giving our lives to you, giving our, our, our body parts, our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears and our mouth, giving them to you for your service and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.